Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The next piece I would say would be that you have a reasonable structure. And by that, I mean, who's going to play for how long, kind of the basic mechanics of the experiment that are often forgotten, right? So it's very common for people to be like, uh... I'm trying this new experiment where I run, <laughs> but, you know, but like <laughs> f- for how far, when, you know, all those kinds of things that kind of keep you honest. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my Valorous co-host, Rodney Evans. Oh, I like Valorous. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about running experiments, failure, and just the general concept of learning by doing stuff. But before we unpack that, we will check in. We'll check in. Let's do it. Yeah. (laughs) Coming as a huge surprise to people who listen to this podcast, we're going to check in today. So I've been using this check-in generator that you gave me, and I just generated this one. And then it was related to our topic today. So Mm. we're going with it. All right. So the question is, what has happened in the last week that you would consider to be a quote unquote win? Any kind of win (laughs) from any domain of your life. What do you think? For me, it would be about working out. So I got my hands on a new workout technology and it has inspired me to want to do it every day. Every morning I've been like rolling out of bed earlier than I normally do running downstairs and working out. And that has felt like a shift, which I'm excited about. Are you going to tell us what the technology is? Yes, it is an Oculus. And inside it, I am playing a game called Supernatural. Nice. All right. Because you know people are going to want to know. Of course they're going to want to know. I just wanted to make you ask. (laughs) You were just like really thirsty for the (laughs) follow-up question. Well... I delivered. Um, So I've been running a little experiment for about three weeks where I take off Wednesdays. And there are a variety of reasons that I'm doing this. But one is that I have not been fully embedded on a transformation project in well over two years. And so it just felt like a good time to be like, "Hmm, what would a little space look like? And during a (laughs) pandemic, it's very easy for me to fill 40 or 50 hours a week with work and just being like, well, I'm going to block off two hours on Tuesday to go for a run is like, it's never going to fucking happen. So this Wednesday, which was yesterday for us here in the East Coast, I just was like really properly fully offline. I went for a really long hike with Rosie, one of my dogs, and did all the things. Like I'm really dedicating that time to things that I want to read about, things that I want to learn about, things that I want to practice, and not things that are work-related. And so I would consider it a win that I actually kept my fucking hands off of Slack for a full 24 hours. 
What's funny is that that check-in reminds me of something that happened in the news, which is, you know, Bezos stepped Mm -hmm. down as CEO. And I remember reading somewhere that he has like a Wednesday or a Thursday each week that's just like wander around and see what happens day. Hi, and I so, didn't know that. So long story short, you may be on your way to becoming a billionaire. Great. That's really good news. And like, look, I'm going to just say out loud, I recognize what a privilege it is to be in a position where I can just do that and where I can be like making less money and all of the things that come with that. I understand that a huge percentage of the population can't be like, you know what? Middle of the week is just for me. Take that off. Yeah, Everybody can just fucking wait until I'm ready to talk to you. Like, I get why that's not realistic for a lot of people. And that being said, in this time that things feel like a bit grueling, you know, I'm certainly kind of at the end of my tether pandemic-wise with just like my own anxiety and boredom. It feels like pretty revolutionary in terms of my mental health. So even though I know it's probably outside of the realm of what a lot of people can do, I also think back to other times in my life where like I never even thought about a possibility like that. And so right. you know, there's I think there's always something to consider even if you don't have like full agency. Yeah, what what is possible? What could you do? Which is what we're going to talk about today. So maybe the experiment is around mental health, not just team experimentation. This sure. is an experiment I am running for 2 months and um, you know, early returns say I'm never going to work on a Wednesday again. But <laughs> Everybody could be thinking about what the experiment they run is, even if it's like go to bed 30 minutes earlier or find a workout thing you're super into or block your calendar on Friday after 2 p.m. or whatever your jam is. So, yeah, let's dig into experimentation. That's what we want to talk about today. Map the territory. Why experimentation? Why now? Where do you want to take this? Okay. So. I chose this topic for today because we talk a lot about experimentation on this show. And I I sense that maybe we talk about it as if everybody is doing it and knows exactly what we mean and we have some shared definition. And that's probably not true. And also because sometimes in conversations with clients early on, they're very like, ugh, barf, I hate that idea and I hate that word and what comes with it and like, can we call it something else? I don't want to do it. So I just feel like there's a lot of misconception around experimentation and also I stay firmly rooted in the idea that we change through experimentation. So I thought it would just be fun for us to unpack what we mean, how it goes, good ones we've seen, how to think about it, how to constrain them so that it really becomes a learning practice, not just like a buzzwordy thing. Well, I mean, for me, I start with definitions. So and what do we mean when we say experiment? So obviously, there's a formal version of an experiment where you have a hypothesis and you're trying to disprove it. And there's a a lot of sort of mechanical rigor around what you do. And I'm not saying we're not including that in the topic here. I think you can be as as rigorous and disciplined as you like to be with your experiments. But I would go to more of like a dictionary definition here, which says a test trial or tentative procedure, an act or operation for the purpose of discovering something unknown or Mm -hmm. testing a principle or supposition. So I like that idea of, yeah, it's for the purpose of discovering something unknown. And that connects to something else we talk about a lot on the show, which is complexity. And the idea that when you have a lot of moving pieces and a lot of dynamism in the world around you, and even within yourself, being sure about anything is really, really hard. And guessing what's going to be correct, or making a plan or committing to something before you've tried it is not great medicine. 
Mm-hmm. And so it would be a lot better if the attitude were try things to find out what happens if and what, you know, what does it mean and what does it feel like? And what are the other things that change when you shift in that way? Right. Because part of it is, you know, you try this thing and something else about your personality or your schedule or your clients shifts in response to that. So, yeah, you've got to learn by doing. And that, I think, is the premise of what we mean when we say it. Yeah. And I think that if you have an experimental mindset, and I really like the definition that says testing a principle that feels like somatically correct to me, um, I think it allows you to be bolder because Mm -hmm. you're like, rather than, I think that the things that usually end up being plans feel often safe because they've been kind of workshopped to death or wrung to death and they become plans because we feel very confident in them, which is dumb and a lie. And we all know that, but it feels good in the moment. I think with experimentation, because we're like holding the principle more lightly, or we're trying to prove something, we can be a little bit more ambitious. Even taking like the Wednesdays off example, like that's a much more ambitious experiment than, you know, starting work an hour later three days a week. But by saying I'm only blocking on my calendar for eight weeks and I'm really going to retrospect and see what happened and see what the impacts were and see if I caused harm to other people by doing this, it feels easier to be bolder. And we're going to talk in this episode about a bunch of different experiments that we've seen, but a lot of the ones that I think are the coolest and have delivered the most learning are the ones where like we took a position that seemed a little bit edgy Mm-hmm. rather than making a plan that felt very comfortable. Yes, that's my my catchphrase, do a radical thing at a non-radical scale. Yes, that is totally. a good catchphrase. We should make you a sweatshirt <laughs> a t-shirt. with that on it. <laughs> a I'm, a, I'm starting better. a Society6 store. It is funny, though, because when you were talking about your Wednesday experiment, you said, you know, this is going to be my forever move. And I think we slip into that a lot as characters in this opera, but actually that's the wrong instinct, right? The right instinct is, this is my right now move until it changes, until something shifts. And then maybe it's Thursdays or maybe it's no days or what have you. I think it's this idea that we're very, very addicted to the permanence and the status quo and the continuation of whatever it is that actually gets in the way of experimentation in the first place, which is like that allergic reaction you described to the word often comes from it feels fragile and it feels not professional and it feels not forever and it feels not safe as a result. And actually, in complexity, you're a lot safer if you just go from experiment to experiment to experiment, compounding your learnings. Yeah. And steering. Yeah, and steering and and also the idea of something being forever. Like even as I think about that, that I was like, based on early returns, this might be my forever thing, is like that is humanity. That is how our brains often work. <laughs> and as soon as we make commitments like that, it feels like a failure when it falls apart. And that's also really dangerous. Like that just impedes our momentum because it's like, oh shit, if one Wednesday I end up facilitating an offsite, is it over now? Like, is, right. did, should I just like throw the whole thing out and burn it down? And, and I feel this way about a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people doing things like dry January. And like we did dry January in our house, but I said to Ed at the very beginning of it, 
I was like, there's not a problem here we're solving. This is a thing that we're going to try to do. And if one night I decide that I'm going to have a bourbon, like it doesn't mean that dry January is over and it was a terrible failure. It's just like, this is a thing we're going to try. Let's learn something from it. And let's decide if we want to extend it. I'm a big fan of experiments over commitments that are unproven. A hundred percent. And I think there are some cognitive biases that reinforce what you just said around Mm. the idea that if I make a $1 donation to a cause, then later I'm more likely to donate time to that cause. Like I want to be consistent with my own pre-commitments. And then the more mental gymnastics I will do in order to keep that consistency. So whether that be a political ideology, even after something crazy has happened or whatever the case may be, like once we're bought in, we're very bought in and it really hurts our psyche to change course. But if we never buy in, then we have the gift of of freedom and flexibility. So yeah, that's a weird habit and norm to like break. It's so much less fragile staying in experimentation because it's like there's not really a critical failure because you wouldn't be doing it as an experiment. If, right. if that was part of the thing. <laughs> so in your opinion, if we were making a cookbook and we were making a recipe for the perfect experiment, what would the ingredients be? Well, maybe we can go back and forth on this. So I think the first ingredient is that the thing that you are going to test comes from you. It comes from your own passion, curiosity, tension. It is something that is emerging within you because then you're going to have the commitment and the ownership and the perspective to try to engage with it correctly. And obviously in science, there are maybe some exceptions to that, but I think it's a little bit dangerous in, in personal or professional experimentation to be like, somebody else thinks this is important, so I'll drive a big experiment around it. Yes. I, think it is, I think it is more interesting to at least feel that you are connected to the topic. Or the leadership move of they need to experiment their way into X. And it's like, they are not going to be that psyched because this was not (laughs) their idea. So yeah, I'm totally with you. So come from a place that you give a shit about and also that you have enough ownership to do something with. The next piece I would say would be that you have a reasonable structure. And by that, I mean, who's going to play for how long kind of the basic mechanics of the experiment that are often forgotten, right? So it's very common for people to be like, "Uh, I'm trying this new experiment where I run, (laughs) you know, but like (laughs) for how far, when, you know, all those kinds of things that kind of keep you honest, right? So I think some kind of, some kind of structure, it doesn't have to be overly mechanical, but something that that allows you to know if you did it or not um, and who did it, uh, you know, who's, who was meant to do it, I think is important. What else? What comes to mind for you? So yeah, I was going to say something around a time horizon. So I'm a big fan of eight-week cycles. I feel like whether you're talking about an experiment that a team is running or an experiment around working out or whatever, it can't be too short because like you have to give an experiment enough breathing time and enough reps to know if it's working and to sort of get through the dip of like, unlearning or discomfort or novelty or newness before you get to the good stuff. So like, you know, running is a great example as a person who's run on and off for my whole life. It's like when you go back to running after a period of time, it sucks and you suck at it. So it's like, you know, being like, I'm going to do this experiment for one week. Well, like that week is hell. So that's 
that's dumb. Give yourself <laughs> eight weeks on whatever you're doing. And also, especially if it's something that a group is committing to, it's like assume and understand everybody is not going to come to learnings and insight at the same pace. So you've sure. got to have enough runway for everybody to get some juice for the squeeze. I mean, I would probably augment that by just saying, ask yourself how long it's going to take to know. Yeah, yeah. Because there are some things that maybe are shorter, right? Like you could, you know, you could be like, I'm going to cook this new breakfast four days in a row. And that might be enough uh, to know. But then there are other things to your point, like running where it's like, it's going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to know. And so I think that's, you know, eight weeks is a great default. And then if it doesn't feel right to you, ask the question, how long will it take to know? My only watch out is that people always think they know sooner than they do. So people think four days into cooking that new breakfast, they can make an assessment. But what they don't yet appreciate is that they don't have mastery over cooking that breakfast. So it still seems hard. And like, how often do you see a team that does something like three action meetings over three weeks and goes, we got it (laughs) and we don't like it. And it's like, you actually don't got it, which is why you don't like it, but you're not far enough into this yet to know that. So I totally agree with you in terms of horizon variability, but also know that like, the human condition is to be like, yeah, I think we've attained mastery. And like, that's the very moment where you have conscious incompetence. Just keep going. Just like do it longer and assume that you don't fully know yet. Um, The other thing along the sort of constraint line is sizing. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing people get so, so wrong, which is just the number of things people try to test at one time And trying to like wrap that up, like, you know, a new team dynamic is not an experiment. An experiment (laughs) is one tool you're going to use, one meeting type you're going to use, one working agreement that you're going to try on, one trade-off that you're going to make, one new workflow that you're going to test, one new breakfast that you're going to eat. Like, you can't just go like, my experiment is to like be a more positive person for eight weeks. Because like, Mm -hmm. how would we ever know? if that's the thing. And leaders so often, I would say like the probably biggest challenge that I have in talking experimentation is that they're like, it's not big enough. It's not big enough. It's not enough (laughs) impact for the investment we're making in whatever. And I'm just like, but you're going to get nothing by trying to go huge rather than getting something significant and maybe something that has real ripple effects we don't know yet by actually testing something specific. So I live that and love that. And also there's a criticism in our space of that, which is that the kinds of changes we're talking about, about how we show up and how we act and think and decide together are so interconnected Mm. that if you just change one part, it may, the system may eat that part. It might uh-huh. just be like, well, we can't just do feedback differently, but have the same power structure and the same rhythms and the same meetings and everything else, or it just won't work. Yeah. How do you reconcile those two things? You know, org design is all about paradox. So how do you how do you live with that paradox? I mean, my answer to that, which is comes up I don't, once a week probably, <laughs> is, okay, well, could you change all of the things at once? And they say no. And I'm like, okay, well, do you want to change something? And then they say yes. And then we go back to, okay, let's start with feedback. It's like trying to do all of the things that we're predicting are interconnected 
is falling into the same traps around complexity as trying to make a perfect plan, which is you can't know actually what the feedback from the system is going to be. And so someone saying, we can't try on a new way of doing feedback because our structure is jacked is to me no different than saying we can't try anything until we've laid down a whole plan because we have to understand all of the risks and dependencies. And it's like, first of all, you'll never understand them because they can't be fully predicted. Second of all, that to me is just an excuse to not do the new feedback thing. So when I'm in those conversations, my counter argument is always like, yes, I believe that that's true, that what we're talking about is one small pebble we are going to drop in a lake. And can you change the whole lake right now? And like the answer is always no. Even if you're the boss, the answer is no. We can't make changes to the structure and the incentives and the training and the budgeting and the strategy all at the same time. Yeah, it almost feels like there are two ways to approach it. Because I hear what you're saying, and I think when the pushback comes from the status quo clinger, it's challenging. When the pushback comes from people that really believe in this work and believe it needs to be done holistically, it's also challenging. Mm-hmm. I always come down on like, well, look, we can either focus on mitigation, which is like starting with principles, having more conversational understanding of what we're talking about and why we want to do this as a system, like having a little bit more awareness of the kinds of antibody response and pushback and shifts that might happen based on a small experiment mm-hmm. and then being sort of vigilant for that, right? So yeah. like when we see the the thing crop up, be like, oh, we're doing that thing, right? And do we all still want to be somewhere else at the end of this? And the other option is is back to scale, but it's on a different vector. So you can do scale two different ways. One way is let's all do a small thing, but we'll all do it. So like let's all do action meetings. But the other way is let's just take this one team and change a bunch of stuff with them more rapidly because they happen to be the team that's ready. They have like a certain willingness or a certain mindset shift that they're like, look, let's go. Like we're yeah. ready to, we're ready to break stuff. And I think both of those are interesting and I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a favorite, but I, I do think, you know, they both cause different kinds of disruption in the system. And frankly, doing both at the same time is super fun. I would say in most of the transformation projects that I've been part of over the last three years, we have done some version of that, which I always call the T-shape. So the bar across the top is all of the things that we are going to do consistently across a huge swath, maybe across the whole organization. And the bottom vertical part of the T is the smaller group that's going to try a whole bunch of stuff. Again, though, not all at once. We're not going to do all the things at one time. Just just faster and more and with the intention of having that group be sort of the the model of like trying stuff. You know, it's great to have a little lab somewhere where there's nothing that's kind of off limits. And usually in large organizations, it's pretty easy to find that group because there's usually like some weird crew of misfits that are already doing things differently. And they're like, yeah, you can mess with stuff here. And you know, we've talked before on this show about going to the place that is really dysfunctional versus going to the place that is working well and wants to be even more radical. And I'm just a big fan of that because they can show what is possible inside of the ecosystem where the group that is really, really jammed up making incremental progress is not going to be inspirational to anyone. And and just to call back to the episode with Doug Kirkpatrick about Morningstar, even in the cases of these companies that are sort of known for thinking and operating differently, 
there still was a point in the beginning where they just had principles and they progressively built practice. Yes. So often we're thinking about unwinding and how do we change and transform this existing system. And so it feels like incremental work there isn't enough. But if you go back and you're like, yeah, they sat down and they were like, don't use force, keep commitments. Mm -hmm. They spent the next 10 years figuring out what the hell that means. Yeah. They didn't write it all down and say, like, here's the practice in every part of the canvas. No, they figured it out by trying stuff. And and that what they compared it to were the principles. And I think for an organization doing the reverse, where they're trying to unwind and reinvent, they just need to do the same thing. Compare the thing that they're working on now to the principles and keep going until you can you know, eat the elephant. And yes, it will be harder, right? It's easier to work with a blank sheet of paper and build that structure and some of those things. But, but nonetheless, it's still the same idea. Yeah. And I don't know if I agree that it's harder with a group that already has stuff in place. I think there are pros and cons to both. Certainly having a ton of tradition and organizational debt that's really calcified makes making these changes difficult. Working in organizations that don't have stuff and are trying to create it, though, to me presents a different kind of issue, which is they are not yet anchored at all into any shared understanding of what doesn't work. So I sometimes find when I'm working with a company that knows what their principles are and are trying to figure out practices, there's a tendency to argue from a position of where we came from before rather than having coherence. It's like, well, we tried that for a year. That sucked. What are we going to try instead? So like, I actually see pros and cons to both. And to me, (laughs) the most fun and I would say, quote unquote, easiest, it's, it's always hard in a different way, but the easiest transformation work I've done was with a CEO who was like a three time founder, had a company that was about 10 years old, had grown a lot, had tried a lot of stuff and had come to this work being like, we're really ready for this. Like they Mm -hmm. had reps and they had infrastructure and they had process, but they were also dissatisfied and it was still flexible enough to mess with. Totally. And that was the place where it was like, okay, let's do compensation experiments. And they were like, here's four ideas. Here's the one we want to do. We'll call you in three months and tell you how it went. And I was like, great, great. great. Good for you guys. So yeah, I feel like there's, there's kind of a sweet spot in there. Anything else to go into our recipe before we move on? I mean, I think the last thing would just be, how do we know if it worked? Mm. So having some sense of what are we looking for? What will the signs be? What, you know, what matters to us in terms of the discovery? Yeah, I would add to that same point, but retrospection on a cadence. It's just got, it's got to be in the mix, especially if you're sort of the steward of the experiment. I feel like it's really easy to get into your own head and just be like, I know what's happening. I know what's going on. I don't (laughs) need any retros. I think it's really helpful to have something. I I find like once a month retros on something we're trying to be really, really useful and really helpful. And even like we did a retro recently at the ready about a compensation practice that we use. And I would say there wasn't like a ton of stuff there. And then systemically, a bunch of new stuff came up after it. So it's like, if you do a retro as part of experimentation, and it feels like you don't get any data that is surprising or controversial, you may have just not seen 
what that is going to create yet. Right. Just wait. <laughs> just like hang like hang hang back for just a, a minute and see if just having had that conversation makes a bunch of people go like, hold hold up. Wait, I, actually, like, because, yeah. you know, what a retro sometimes does is just provoke us into thinking about something that we haven't thought about. We might just not have those insights in time to contribute them in the moment. We have a recipe. It's written. It obviously makes perfect cookies. What are some of the best and worst experiments that you've seen in this kind of, in our work, like in org design work, either internally, at clients, in the world? What are sort of your greatest hits? For me, I would say the best experiments have been experiments where a smaller part that is fractal of the larger part decides to go fast. So Mm -hmm. working with a restaurant and having a region completely change the way orders and strategy flows or working with a factory that's one of 50 factories or working with, you know, a, a function within a large beverage company that kind of just reinvents itself or a function within a large consulting company that reinvents itself. It seems like this container of scale where there's enough people for interesting experiments to emerge and then that it is microcosmic in the sense that there are others like it out there is really, really interesting. So all all of those experiments have felt self-similar to me where basically there was some kind of I mean, I'm thinking in all these cases, there's some kind of leader or power holder who's like, this way isn't working. This sucks. We want to go and and we want to be the ones kind of busting through the wall of what's next and actually galvanizing some measure of support around that idea. And then just to your point, one micro experiment at a time. And I would say, you know, great experiments often are in the most mundane places. So meetings, right? Doing action meetings, doing governance meetings, doing retrospectives, you know, shifting how we do meetings with meeting moves like check-ins and agendas on the fly and things like that. Like those little tastes tend to provoke really good results. And then I love experiments around role work. And I know you do as well. So like getting our roles clarified, the purpose of them, having more than one role rather than one sort of super job description that sucks, having, you know, decision rights clear for the group. One of my favorite experiments is definitely the consent-based decision-making or integrative decision-making that we teach. Just that, just having a group and be like, look, when we make important decisions that require everyone's input, let's try doing it this way and let's do that for eight weeks. That's a religion in the making almost every time we do it. It's always resistant in the beginning and it's always at the end like, how did we ever live? Yeah, I like that. I have a couple that are pretty specific in mind that maybe just like hit a little bit of a different note. So one is I love experiments where the thing, the tension that has been caused mm-hmm. is because the right cross-functional people have never gotten into a room to sort something out <laughs> and they fucking hate each other because yeah. <laughs> there's like – I've been in more than one thing where there's a workflow that has a bunch of handoffs. This always happens in supply chain. If you work in supply chain management, call me because I have learned so much working in and around supply chain. Y'all, y'all do the Lord's work. I swear. Like it, the fact that like <laughs> those people invariably have like 16 stakeholders who all want different things, 30,000 vendors, the food safety people, like the regulators, if you're in pharma, the food safety people, if you're in food and bed, the, they, like, they, they just like sit in the middle of the mess 
And everybody's mad at them all the time because the finance people want them to improve margin and the customer facing people want better product and the vendors want a better deal. And like everybody wants something from them and then they just sit in the middle of it. And I've done work with supply chain teams in a bunch of different places and they they tend to just be full of lovely people who probably because they have to like negotiate all day with people who are mad at them. <laughs> they have a very, yeah, they have a really uh, lovely way of being in the middle of conflict. But I often find if there's a particular pain point that just feels intractable and we get all of the players into an operating rhythm where we just unblock it little bit by little bit by little bit, you will see a thing that's been kicking around the place for three years get solved in less than eight weeks. And everybody just feels so happy and so proud of themselves. And, and then they don't have to just continue to carry this burden. And and look, I, I, I'm not in any way saying like, those people are incompetent for not having gotten in the room together. There are often a lot of reasons that that hasn't happened. <clears throat> and it's only when we have this specified need that we do that. Well, it is, it's a structure experiment in the micro, because what you're saying is basically, for whatever reason, these people do not have direct contact with each other on a day-to-day rolling basis, because the, the work they do is overlapping, but somehow the structure is not allowing that. Often, by the way, because, for example, we had a client where the two organizations that needed to work together the most were literally on different floors or in different buildings. And that's just, that is structural design manifesting in real estate. And it is just bad news. And so it is funny to just say, like, what if everybody was just in the same room for an hour? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a structure experiment that ultimately probably ends with cross-functional teaming or different, you know, different groupings than we have now. But it's such a light lift. And to your point, it's such a revelation when it's just like, oh, wow, like a face, but a face to go with that email that I'm always yelling at. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's so much in there that is very mindset based because you can have physical distance. And also a lot of times when there's an experiment that revolves around a cross-functional tension, I often find that the people from the different teams have been asked or cajoled by their leaders to like stay in a one-on-one dynamic so that they don't give anything away in the negotiation. And just by creating a more transparent, shared, open discussion, everybody learns that like no one is trying to negotiate really at the expense of everyone else. Everyone just has their own need. And often all of the needs can get met if we're all just in one conversation together. So I love those things because I've just seen like really significant problems that everyone thought were intractable get solved just amazingly quickly. And then the other experiment that I've been really happy, happy is the wrong word because it's been kind of painful. We've talked a lot about hiring on this podcast, probably because I think so much about it, but what we have done with our hiring process so far is be really specific about trade-offs that we're making and live with the pain of those trade-offs and then change them. And we were holding a hypothesis that we came to collectively about biasing toward having, I don't want to say a lower bar, I want to say a lower wall to becoming a prologue member, an early member, and figuring stuff out by doing real work together. And that was like, that was a trade-off that we chose. We basically said, we're going to shorten our interview process. 
We're going to keep it really tight. We're basically going to have like a no objections way of becoming a prologue member. And then we're going to figure this stuff out in the first six months. Yep, yep. And what we found through doing that is it's entirely possible, but it's a lot of investment both for the prologue member and for us to work together for six months only to figure out that something is not going to work out. And so I use that as an example of a pretty bold trade-off to be like less quote unquote vetting from both sides up front, more inclusion, bigger tent, figure it out later that I would say is not working. And we're going to change. We're going to try it. We're going to test a new hypothesis in the next trimester because we've learned a whole bunch of things. And so that's why I say it doesn't make me happy because with experiment comes failure, but it also is the right thing, in my opinion, if you're trying to do something new and you don't feel like other people have it figured out and you're trying to figure it out in your own context, you have to choose real ass trade-offs and then really <laughs> ass live with them. And then when they suck, be like, okay, well, let's flip it. Let's try it the other way around and see what we get then. Well, and this comes back to optimization, which is something I talk about and draw about a lot back when I used to do in-person workshops. When you are navigating a fitness landscape, which is what an evolutionary biologist would call all the possible things you could evolve into, there are peaks and valleys. And whatever you're standing on top of is the current peak that you have. It Mm -hmm. might be the highest one in the whole mountain range, or it might be really low. But the only way to find out is to crawl down and then back up another hill. And so you literally have to like go down to go up. And what is funny to me is this all boils down to time frame, like we were talking about a couple episodes ago, optimizing for what and for when. If you want to optimize for this year's results, you're going to have a really hard time doing the kind of experimentation you just talked about. Yes. Where you might dedicate six months to, to a real swing, a dangerous swing, and a, you know, a unique swing, and then find out that it doesn't really work for you, and then do it again and again and again. But if you're optimizing for the decade or multi-decades, like some of the you know great entrepreneurs of our time do, then and then that's fine. Like what what's six months in a seven year time horizon if it means that you land at the highest peak in the game? And I think that's what this boils down to, and that's why it's so important to be aware of your context. Yeah. How at risk are you? How much can you risk? You know, this is you're at the betting table, and that's true of of anything, right? Like, am I willing to risk my mornings by working out for a week or not? Am I willing to risk sleeping in? Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But it all depends on how much sleep am I getting? You know, am I, and maybe I can risk it because I'm doing okay. Whereas if I work the night shift at the ER, I'd be like, I can't risk it. Like I can't, ri- those four hours are all I've got. So I'm not going to risk them. So I do think there is this analysis of your situation that goes into the experiment. And I have heart for organizations that are willing to risk more in search of more principled ways of working because the long-term payoff is so big. Yeah. Yeah. That's very comforting. And if I think about that as the foundation for the example I just gave, in my mind, the ready is going to be around for a long time. And we are figuring something out that I don't think anyone has figured out. And I want it to be the way forever. So like, If it takes us five years, you know, we're in year two. If it takes us five years to get to a point where we're like, yeah, we're fucking nailing this. (laughs) I I can live with that because I know what doing this work in a short-term way looks like. And I know that it's deeply unsatisfying. But but that does not mean that in year two, when one of your hypotheses doesn't prove out, 
it doesn't feel bad because it does. No, of course. Of course it does. And it also doesn't mean that nothing is good until year five. Right. I think what people <laughs> totally. miss is, Absolutely. I mean, look at look at something like compensation at the ready. We've been through six iterations. So many. We're definitely not at the highest <laughs> peak yet. But like each time we've learned something and each time I feel like it's gotten a little bit better or we've like mapped the territory more. So you do feel progress, even if you don't have mastery, even if you're not sure about the location. I do feel like every experiment lends itself to this feeling of we're starting to understand the space and what the possibilities are. So much so that I did some compensation work for a nonprofit this year and off the top of my head built a matrix of like 18 variables and the choices within each one. And then I stood back and I was like, damn, that kind of fell out fast. Like I just was able to like be like, it's this and this and this and this and this and this. You make these choices in each one of these things and that's your recipe yeah. for your compensation strategy. And that was only through our flailing. Yeah. And I think that's totally right in terms of the emotional experience is like, <laughs> it does feel in the moment like, okay, we are learning things. And like, this does feel like progress. And it does feel like two steps forward and one step back which is what experimentation is. And in the one step back, whether you're talking about like compensation at the ready is a great example. There has been a lot of emotional discomfort and pain around that topic. So it's like, we can take the macro view and be like, on balance, we are getting better every trimester with the tweaks we're making. And the reason we're making those tweaks is because people are experiencing pain. Yeah. And like, that's what experimentation is, which like I... I say this and sort of like click into it because I really like the analogy around mountain ranges. And because I'm living this in the hiring domain, it's like in the moment, the discomfort and the frustration and the feelings of like, uh, why didn't this work the way that I wanted it to work are real. And it also doesn't mean you're not making progress. Those are totally like two sides of the exact same coin. But I think all of that stuff is present when we avoid trying something new or trying something bold. If you're the Sherpa and you get to the top of the local hill and everybody goes like, this view sucks. Yeah. That's that's hard. And then <laughs> when you so march true. them back down the mountain and they're like, this sucks. Why did we walk up this hill? We're walking back down it. That also hurts. Uh-huh. And and it like it's not without discomfort, right? You only get the payoff when the group gets to the next summit. And there's this sense of like, we did something and we weathered it. And honestly, that's why I think when you think about recruiting generally at any of your companies out there, if you're going to be the sort of place that plays the long game on experimentation, you should tell folks when they're coming in, like, we are kind of a guinea pig culture, we poke and prod, we try things that are uncomfortable, we do things that later we think we're stupid, but we do it out of a love of principles and out of a love of this desire to become something more over mm-hmm. time. And you'll have a voice in that and you'll have a say in that, but you will also be affected by it. Mm-hmm. And are you cool with that? Yeah. Is that the kind of game you want to play? Or do you want to be in a place where like there are part, I mean, one of my first clients had parking spaces for 25 year veterans Uh and it was like nothing changes, right? You know, the, the pension plan is the pension plan is the pension plan. So if that's your game, definitely avoid it. But if you're the hiring manager or leader or person who's having that conversation with the candidate and you're this kind of culture, you got to tell them like, we're going to walk up and down a lot of hills and the views may suck occasionally. And it's like, and if you hate this experience, just wait until we start experimenting with compensation. If you're not loving this, you're going to hate what comes next. Yeah, exactly. Which is, <laughs> which, 
which is, I, I think, you know, we're an extreme example and we use ourselves as an example a lot on this podcast. But I would say that having coached a lot of teams that were in the throes of experimentation, they do all experience some version of this where they're like, the feeling of creating a hypothesis was so good. The experiment of the setbacks was not good. And getting the momentum up to climb the next hill is challenging. And yet that's what the best teams do. That's what the best teams do. You know, ergo, get used to it. <laughs> yeah, climb aboard. Uh, that seems like a pretty good place to to draw things to a close. I do feel like this was part one of a two-part, you know, series. So, so we'll have much to come back to, to this topic about when this. we have time. But for now, we'll shut it down and we'll do a little retrospective ourselves. If you like what you're hearing, a review would be really super great. We love getting them. We love reading them. We love hearing from you. Or you can forward our show to someone who needs it. Or you can email us and tell us what else you want to hear about experimentation. Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work through experimentation. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>